0: today on something you should know what you don't know about staying warm when the weather gets cold that could save your life also if
1: you fly there's a lot about commercial air travel you probably don't understand you know there's this idea out there that planes fly themselves and the pilots are there just uh, in case something goes wrong and then they 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 jump in like Captain Sully and saved the day. I mean, the idea that an airplane flies itself is like saying that an operating room can perform an organ transplant by itself.
0: Plus how the annoying people in your life really mess up your brain, and how this self-imposed desire to always be productive is actually making you less productive.
2: These unconscious beliefs that we should constantly be productive are getting in the way of our ability to use our leisure time effectively to recharge our batteries, and come back to those obligations that do require productivity.
0: All this today on Something You Should Know. Microsoft Teams is helping a bicycle company reinvent
1: the way that they work.
0: Something you should know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, something you should know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, the weather is starting to cool down in many parts, even here in California. We're having cooler days as we head into winter. And as things cool down, there are some interesting things to keep in mind that will help you not freeze this winter. First of all, you should protect your core. When people lose fingers, toes, and other extremities to frostbite, that is self-preservation at work. In order to protect your vital organs in your torso, the body stops sending blood to your extremities. If you keep your torso warm, the body will worry about fingers and toes. Wear a hat. The assumption that, you've probably heard this, 70% of a person's body heat escapes through the head That's just not true. Fact is, body heat loss relates to how much skin is exposed, not which part of the body you're exposing. With that said, wearing a hat can definitely keep you warm. Because the more skin you cover up, the warmer you will stay. And drink more water. Water is actually very effective for retaining body heat. Simply put, the more water you have in your system, the easier it is to keep warm. And that is something you should know. Whenever you fly on an airplane, you probably sit in your seat and wonder about things like, how exactly does this thing fly? And is turbulence really dangerous? Why has air travel become such a hassle? Well, the person to ask those questions to is Patrick Smith. Patrick is an airline pilot and has been for some time. He's a blogger, His website is askthepilot.com, and he's the author of a book called Cockpit Confidential, Everything You Need to Know
1: About Air Travel.
0: Hi, Patrick, welcome.
1: Hi, thanks for having me on.
0: So let's start with this. Let's start with what the hell happened to air travel? (laughs) What? What? Because I remember the day. I'm not that old. I remember a day when I, you know, I never really looked forward to getting on an airplane. But it, it wasn't the hassle, and you didn't hear the stories. And what? What happened?
1: I'm the first one to admit that air travel has become um, an undignified and, in many ways, uncivilized experience. It's it's noisy. It's just generally tedious and uncomfortable, and, and it's all of the things that we know. But You can also make the argument that air travel is in a lot of ways in a golden age right now. I mean, you hear often about people referencing this uh, golden age of air travel that existed somewhere in the past, but nobody can really define where it was exactly or what it was. Uh, And in a lot of ways, I think it's a a mythical construction and that you could actually make the argument that the golden age of flying is right now. And, And that will sound completely preposterous to people, but... Let's look at it, affordability of flying to begin with. Flying has never been less expensive than it is now. The average airfare is about half of what it was 25 years ago and that's after you factor in all of those ancillary fees that airlines love and people hate. I know people feel nickel and dimed by, by the add-ons and fees but in a lot of ways they, they help keep the price down overall by letting certain people pick certain perks that not everybody wants. People don't remember, younger people especially today, how expensive flying used to be. When I was a kid in the, the, the 70s and into the early 80s, I knew a lot of people who had never been on an airplane. And the main reason for that is because their, their families couldn't afford to fly. Yeah, I remember and, that And too. that's, that's yeah. not true anymore. Pretty much everybody can afford to fly most of, or, or sometimes. Then let's, let's look at safety. Uh, flying has never been safer than it is right now. And, you know, you go back to the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, we used to see multiple large scale air disasters every year around the world, sometimes 10 or more of them every year. And now if there's one major accident in a year somewhere in the globe, it, it's, it's a big story. Flying is far, far safer than it used to be. It's far cheaper. And, you know, in, in some ways, and this will sound crazy, but it's, it's also more comfortable and what do i mean by that well first if you can afford to fly in first or business class the premium cabins on today's jetliners are more luxurious than, than they've ever been you've got 6 7 foot sleeper seats uh, 30 inch video screens with on demand movies and tv shows all you can eat or drink i mean some airplanes now have uh, bars and buffets and even showers you know this it's it's never been as as swanky and even in economy class, now you have on-demand video, seat-back screens, you've got Wi-Fi. Uh, these are things that didn't exist even 10 or 15 years ago. But you would have a hard
0: time explaining to that, I can't see that image of that doctor being dragged off the United flight telling him, this is the golden age of air
1: travel. (laughs) Well, everything I just said, notwithstanding, I mean, the indignities of flying are duly noted. And, you know, the long security lines, uh, the delays, uh, the congestion, um, there are a lot more planes flying nowadays. And that, that kind of segues into a point that's, I think, sort of interesting. You know, more people are flying than ever before, but we're doing it in smaller planes making more and more departures. For airlines now, frequency, the number of flights is is the name of the game. And that has unfortunately clogged up our airspace to the point where when the weather gets bad, the whole system, you know, in some cases collapses and you end up with these two, three, four, five-hour delays. Uh, it didn't used to be that way. And part of that is the industry's infatuation with using regional jets instead of mainline jets for so much of their flying. That's something that began... Uh, in earnest about 20 years ago, and the major carriers began outsourcing more and more of their domestic flying to these regional affiliates that now make up for about 50% of, of all the takeoffs and landings in the United States. You know, there's a
0: website that I look at once in a while. It's uh, uh, flightradar24.com, and it's a flight tracker thing. And I remember the first time I looked at it, and it's it shows airplanes in real time, what the planes are, what their destination is, uh, and, and where they are in the sky right now. And the first time I looked at it, I was shocked at how many airplanes are in the sky at any one time. To- I mean, I didn't even know there, that, there were that many airplanes.
1: It is remarkable. And then extrapolate that globally, how many airplanes around the world are, are in the air at any one point. I think, Mike, that that helps underscore what I was saying earlier about how safe flying is. We have so many more airplanes carrying so many more people but our, you know, the safety record globally has, has never been as, as strong as it is now. And in the U.S., I mean, man, we we haven't had a uh, what you would call a large-scale, major crash involving a, a mainline airline in the United States, a major carrier, carrier, your American, United, Delta, um, since 2001. Yeah. I mean, it's it's been 18 years since we had the kind of air disaster that we used to see once or twice a year uh, at least so let's I mean, run how, through. how remarkable is that i mean almost 20 years that that's that's incredible that's maybe the biggest single story in in all of uh, commercial aviation over the past 20 years let's but run. nobody acknowledges it and and i think one of the reasons is when things do happen even comparatively minor incidents uh they get they become spun up in the media and, and you have so much media now across all these different platforms vying for attention that, uh, you know, a plane has a landing gear problem and, and it's, 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 a, it's a spectacle. And, it you know, it's in circulation and goes viral, as they say, for, you know, days at a time. And, and most of those incidents, from at least from a pilot's perspective, are, are you know, non-events. I
0: think as, as passengers, people are very sensitive to movement. Uh, abrupt movement in the plane either because of turbulence or because of the uh, of turning the plane or, or so talk about that
1: I think people would be surprised to know that even in pretty strong turbulence even in, in very rough air a plane is barely moving from its point in space a lot of people seem to think the plane is plummeting uh, hundreds or even thousands of feet and, and really if you looked at the altimeter during turbulence it's barely moving at all I mean maybe 10 feet a plane will almost never turn at more than about 25 degrees of, of turn, of bank, yet people will swear that their plane is banking 90 degrees or, or 60 degrees or some insane number like that. I'd love to bring you into a simulator or in a an aerobatic airplane and show you what those numbers would really feel like. Um, a very steep climb in a, in a jetliner is about 20 degrees nose up, and a descent is usually uh, somewhere in the order of two degrees or maybe five degrees at most, nose down. And people hear that and they say, no way, that, that there's no way that's true. I know my plane was going 45 degrees, nose down towards the ground. It wasn't. It just wasn't. And I wish I could take you into a plane and show you that, but uh, for the time being, try to take my word for it. I'm speaking with airline pilot Patrick Smith from
0: askthepilot.com. He is also author of the book Cockpit Confidential, Everything You Need to Know About Air Travel. As the Something You Should Know podcast grows and we're looking to expand and hire new people, it's become really clear that the right hire makes all the difference. That's why it's so important to find the right person. But where? You could try posting on job boards, but can you really be sure the right person sees your job? Instead, find the person who will really help your business grow with LinkedIn. When you hear that, doesn't that just make sense? I mean, That's where the smart people in your industry go, LinkedIn. As the world's largest professional network, people go to LinkedIn every day to grow professionally and discover job opportunities. And this you'll find interesting. Most LinkedIn members have not recently visited the top job boards. Yet 9 out of 10 members are open to new opportunities. Think about that. You can only reach them on LinkedIn. That's why a new hire is made every 10 seconds using LinkedIn. Hurry to linkedin.com/something and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com/something to get $50 off your first job post. linkedin.com/something. Terms and conditions apply. You know, it's always those weird noises at night that make me think about home security, which is why I'm a big fan of Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe is ready for anything that gets thrown at it. If a storm takes out your power, no problem. If an intruder cuts your phone line, Simply Safe is ready. Say they destroy your keypad or the siren, Simply Safe will still get you the help you need. Yeah, maybe it's overkill. Maybe you don't need to be ready for every worst case scenario. But that's what makes Simply Safe Home Security System so great. It's always ready no matter what. Simply Safe could cost an arm and a leg, but it doesn't. Instead, they only charge you what's fair 24 7 professional security monitoring for just $14.99 a month. And there are no contracts and no hidden fees. I recommend Simply Safe to everyone I know and I suggest you check out Simply Safe so when you hear those funny creaks and noises in the middle of the night you don't need to worry. Go to simplysafe.com/something today. That's simplysafe.com/something to protect your home and family. simplysafe.com/something and I've put that link in the show notes. So Patrick, here's something I've always wondered about. Because so, I see this in the movies a lot. So, so say I'm a passenger on the plane, and you're the pilot, and there's a co-pilot, and you've all eaten the bad fish, and you're all dead now. <laughs> and I have to fly the plane. I'm the only qualified person to fly the plane. Could someone talk me through it, like in the movies, and I could land the plane, or would I crash and kill everybody? you would crash it.
1: There's zero chance of you getting the plane on the ground. And, um, you know, this gets into something that is uh, one of my favorite slash least favorite things to talk about, and that's people's understanding of what cockpit automation does, or more specific, specifically, what it doesn't do. Um, people have a very vastly exaggerated understanding of what automation does and how pilots interact with that automation. Um, you know, there's this idea out there that planes fly themselves and the pilots are there just uh, in case something goes wrong and then they they, they jump in like Captain Sully and save the day. Uh, that's, that's not the way it works at all. I mean, the idea that an airplane flies itself is like saying that an operating room can perform an organ transplant by itself. Um, obviously, you need the uh, experience and the talent and the expertise of, of the doctor, and the same uh, goes for the, the, the pilot in the cockpit. And I think you'd be amazed at how busy a cockpit becomes even with all of the automation on. You know, more than 99% of landings are, are you know, hands-on. I don't want to use the word old-fashioned. It's just the way they are. Um, and 100% of takeoffs are, are hands-on. There's no such thing in any anywhere in commercial aviation as an automatic takeoff.
0: Is it hard to land a plane? I mean, if you've done it as a pilot a million times, Is the next one really that hard, or is it like driving a car where after you've done it for several years, it's pretty easy for you?
1: Well, ask a doctor if uh, a particular operation is easy. I I think what you're getting at is that things become routine. I think routine is is a good word. That doesn't mean anybody could do it or that it's easy, but if you're a professional trained to do that task, then uh, at a certain point it kind of comes natural.
0: What are the other things that people ask you about the
1: most? I've always been surprised at how many people are put off by turbulence, by rough air. Yeah, Uh, Nervous flyers, anxious flyers uh, especially. But it wasn't until I started writing and fielding questions from the traveling public that I realized what um, a big deal turbulence was for so many flyers. Because, uh, you know, from our perspective, from the pilot's point of view, you know, we see it as as a comfort and convenience issue, not as a, a safety issue, per se. The number of airplanes that have crashed due to turbulence in and of itself uh, in the whole history of commercial aviation can, can be counted on one hand. Um, and I, I don't want to downplay it too much, though, because every year, yeah, a certain number of passengers are injured. Um, by rough air, but normally because they're not sitting down with their seatbelts on when they're supposed to be.
0: But as a pilot, when when the plane hits turbulence and it does that thing where it just feels like it drops and all, do you mm-hmm. as, are you as the pilot concerned, like, oh, we need to do something about this, or do you just, like, ride ride through it knowing that this will work out?
1: For pilots, a turbulence encounter is a very hands-off thing. Uh, you're not fighting the turbulence so much as just letting it run its course and the plane, uh, you know, kind of rumbles through it. But, um, you know, there, there isn't this this plummeting and there isn't this wrestling with the controls. You know, turbulence moves you one way and you, you fight it back the other way. No, it, it, it doesn't happen that way. It's, it's very hands off. And, and planes are stable to the point where anytime they're disturbed from their position in space by their nature, they want to go back to where they were. So the plane can more or less just ride through turbulence on its own. We're not gripping the wheel. We're not we're not fighting it.
0: I remember hearing that uh, this came as a somewhat as a surprise to me that it takes longer now to fly uh let's say coast to coast because the airplanes have been slowed down by policy in order to save fuel.
1: The the typical jetliner actually flies a little bit slower than uh, was the case uh, 40 or 50 years ago, believe it or not. But that's in the name of efficiency. Um, just the planes are designed to fly more efficiently and use, use less fuel. But normally, if you're, if you're slowed down flying cross-country, it's because of air traffic constraints. There are just so many planes and traveling at slightly different speeds. So if you're behind one airplane that's at such and such a speed, you may have to slow down slightly. Um, to preserve the, the choreography of, of, you know, which planes are on which routes. Uh, sometimes there's flexibility, but sometimes air traffic control just assigns you a speed because that, that's all they can do because of the volume of planes. Oh, so, so air traffic
0: control tells you how fast or slow to fly. Sometimes, yes. And how much pressure is, is put on pilots to, to get, off, get out of that gate on time and land that plane on time?
1: Well, it's not pilots specifically. It's um, it's the whole team. It's it's the gate staff and the flight attendants and the pilots and the ground crew. You know, uh, sure, we're under some pressure to get the aircraft off on time. I think uh, the last statistics I saw, industry-wide in the U.S., something like 85% of flights arrive on time. And considering how many flights are now being pushed through the system, that's, that's a pretty good number. And if, of course, though, that... The numbers will vary region to region. Some airports are just notoriously more delay-prone than others. As a pilot,
0: you don't typically, I imagine, have a lot of contact uh, and a lot of time to have contact with passengers. But but, but, what do you like to hear? I mean, do you like to hear people go, hey, good landing, or hey, nice takeoff? I mean, is there anything that, like, pumps you up and like, yeah, I did, I did well today?
1: Oh, any any compliment or any just smile and a thank you and and by the way passengers are more than welcome to come up to the cockpit and and say hello and uh, maybe get a little tour uh any point at any point before or after the flight um you know no you can't come up during the flight as was the case in the old days but uh, as long as things aren't too hectic or too busy before the flight you're you're more than welcome to to come on up and have a look around really you like that's not a bother to you you know, there's, there's a disconnect. You're in the cockpit. You're, you're physically separated from the cabin. Uh, so to, to have that interaction, uh, in a lot of cases, just, just feels nice.
0: What is the difference between the pilot and the co-pilot? Are they equally qualified, and, and why is one the co-pilot and one the pilot?
1: This is one of those kind of perpetual misunderstandings that people have. The idea that there is the pilot... And then the co-pilot, who is you know, maybe somehow not a real pilot, <laughs> um, and that's that's not the case. I mean, I'm a co-pilot. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a first officer. Uh, colloquially, we, we say co-pilot. But both of the, the people in the cockpit, and there are always at least two, are full-fledged pilots who are qualified to operate the airplane in every regime of flight. The captain has uh, the ultimate responsibility and the bigger check to go with that but we both essentially have the same duties and we both fly the airplane. If you're say flying from New York to Chicago, to Los Angeles, the one pilot will be the hands-on control pilot for the the first leg. And then the other pilot will be the hands-on control pilot for the the, the second leg performing the takeoff and the landing. The co-pilots take off and land airplanes all the time.
0: So when you go on a flight, when do you get to the airport, and do you, as, as a pilot or a first officer, do you really inspect the plane, or do you leave that to the people that do that, or what? what's your,
1: prior to the plane leaving the gate, what is it you do? Great question, and like so many things in aviation, it, it, it depends, it varies, so one of the big variables here is, uh, are you doing a short-haul domestic flight or a long-haul international flight for a uh, Short-haul, run-of-the-mill domestic flight. Uh, you know, I like to be at the airplane somewhere around an hour before departure. There are, uh, there are a series of checks that we run through. Uh, the maintenance personnel also run through a separate series of checks and, and inspections. So it's uh, different things are going on and different, different personnel are, are performing those checks and tests. Um, there's paperwork to go through and review, that sort of thing. Uh, For an international flight, uh, my carrier, our requirement is to be present an hour and a half before departure. And we typically go to a a briefing room where we have little cubicles set up where we go through the the flight plan page by page, looking at the route and charting it out on a map and all that sort of thing. Uh, There's a lot of paperwork involved. And also on the longer flights, any flight, at my carrier anyway, over eight hours, we bring three pilots. We'll have a captain and two co-pilots, two first officers. And then once we're in the air, we work in shifts. So one pilot will be on break with always a minimum of two pilots in the cockpit. And then on even longer flights, we'll bring four pilots and work in teams of two.
0: Well, it's so interesting. And it's what I think people wonder about all the time when they fly is, you know, kind of what's going on behind the scenes And I appreciate you filling in those blanks. Patrick Smith has been my guest. He is an airline pilot, and he has a website called askthepilot.com, and the name of his book is Cockpit Confidential, Everything You Need to Know About Air Travel. And there is a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes. Thanks, Patrick. Okay. all right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You know, I've worked on projects and with businesses with great ideas, but the issue always comes up, okay, so now how do we reach the right people? Well, when you're marketing B2B to people in a particular industry, LinkedIn Marketing Solutions is the answer. LinkedIn Marketing Solutions drives brand awareness, generates great leads, and builds long-term, purposeful relationships. Advertising on LinkedIn's network of more than 575 million members is precise and powerful, with the ability to effectively target the right message to the right people while they're in that professional mindset. Right? When, when people go on LinkedIn, they're in that professional mindset. And that results in higher quality leads and higher brand awareness. I speak from experience when I say that when it comes to marketing your business, it's all about reaching the right people at the right time. LinkedIn Marketing Solutions is the way to do it. Four out—listen to this—four out of five customers who are on LinkedIn are decision makers at their companies. To redeem a free one hundred dollar LinkedIn ad credit and launch your first campaign, go to LinkedIn.com/slash-something. That's LinkedIn. Dot .com slash something for your free $100 ad credit. Terms and conditions apply. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. But you know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do, and I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit geico.com today. That's geico.com. This year, you don't need to reinvent yourself. Every day is a chance to build your future. And M1 Finance wants to help you keep building on what you started last year and the year before that. M1 is the finance super app where you can invest, borrow, save and spend all in one place. More than half a million people already have accounts with M1. It's easy to set up your account and M1 is designed to be personalized for your needs. Invest how you want with access to fractional shares and unmatched automation for free. You can borrow against your investments at super low rates just 2 to 3.5%, and use this flexible portfolio line of credit for anything, like investing more into your portfolio, refinancing other loans, or funding large projects. M1 ties it together in a free, digital account, so you can have more flexibility and smoother money movements. Just keep in mind, borrowing involves higher risks, and rates may vary. Visit m1finance.com something to sign up and get $30 to invest. Remember, that's m1finance.com something. Terms and conditions apply. You've likely heard me mention and recommend the Jordan Harbinger Show podcast before. And the reason I mention it is, well, yes, Jordan advertises his show here, And he does that for strategic reasons. You see, people who like this podcast are bound to like his podcast. He and I have a similar philosophy. In fact, I just spoke with him on the phone yesterday to compare some notes. Look, I really want you to give The Jordan Harbinger Show a listen. He covers a lot of topics with big-name guests like Seth Godin, Mark Cuban, uh, Kevin Systrom, one of the founders of Instagram. And Jordan's done really interesting episodes where he talks about his visits to North Korea, as well as how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars being chased by the feds and the mafia. So, as you see, there's a lot of variety, but one constant is Jordan's ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you'll find something useful that you can apply in your life in every episode of Jordan's podcast. I enjoy The Jordan Harbinger Show, and and I'm not saying that because he's advertising. It really is good. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's amazing how many people claim they're tired. You know, you ask someone, how you doing? And you often hear, oh, I'm so tired. Tired, fatigued, burned out, too much to do, not enough time to do it. It's an epidemic and it's, it's no way to live. So what can you do about it? Well, you can start by listening to my next guest who has looked into the science of why this is happening and what you can do about it. Jamie Grumman is Professor of Organizational Behavior and a Senior Research Fellow at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. And he is the author of the book, Boost, The Science of Recharging Yourself in an Age of Unrelenting Demands. Hey, Jamie, welcome.
2: Thank you. Thanks. Uh, It's a pleasure being here.
0: So what's the problem here? Why is everybody so tired? Has everyone always been tired and we're just now complaining about it more? Or what's going on?
2: Well, I think the problem is, you know, if you just ask people you know, if they're tired, they say, yeah, uh, you know, there's research out of the States that suggests that uh, on any given day, about 40% of people say they're tired, and 42% of those people say that it compromises their job performance. So it's a big problem. And if you go around the globe and look at the, the research that's been done you know, internationally, you find the same things. So, you know, numbers ranging from, you know, lows of, say, 10% up to 30 or 40%, as I said, Where does it come from? I think, ultimately, there are a lot of reasons. But I think part of it is the simple fact that people work more these days. We put in longer hours than we did, say, 50 years ago. We have dual-income families, so there's just less leisure time to get things done, so our our lives are crammed. The other big thing, I think, is that we live in a capitalist society. And one of uh, capital, every, every economic and political system comes with it certain assumptions that underlie the system. And one of the assumptions that underlies capitalism is the idea of, of productivity and efficiency. And to be sure, when you're working or, or engaged in whatever uh, productive activity you're engaged in, you want to be productive, you want to be efficient, you want to get it done as well, as effectively, and, and as quickly as you can be productive. But what happens is, I think this idea of productivity and efficiency gets under our skin. It gets into our bones. And so we find ourselves in moments of leisure in the evenings or on the weekends or on our vacations, and if we're not being productive, we feel bad. We feel guilty. I mean, I know I can, tons of people who, if they're you know, not doing something productive, whether shopping or doing laundry, they're sitting around enjoying themselves, and they, they'll say, I feel so guilty, I should be doing something.
0: Oh, I think that, that applies to everybody. At some point, I think everybody feels that way. I know I've felt that way plenty of times when I... Especially when there is something that you know you probably need to do, and yeah, it could probably wait, but, but you know it's, it's undone, and it just hangs there.
2: So that's, a, that's actually a psychological phenomenon uh, that's been studied for decades. Uh, if you haven't finished something, it stays in your head and you feel bad that you're not doing it. And, but that's, therein lies the rub. That's the problem. The problem is that we feel guilty and, and we feel that there's something wrong. What we need to do is get over that and recognize that these the unconscious, they really are unconscious beliefs that we should constantly be productive are getting in the way of our, of our ability to use our leisure time effectively to recharge our batteries and come back to those obligations that do require productivity being more productive.
0: The issue, though, I think, is that for many people, even if this has become their life, where they're tired and stressed out and exhausted all the time, it becomes their normal. And yeah, it's not great, but it's not so painful that there's a big urge to change. You just muddle through.
2: I think you're absolutely right. I think oftentimes what happens is people don't change until they hit a brick wall. You know, when does the drunk realize he has a drinking problem? When he wakes up in the gutter and his family's left him. But that's really unfortunate, isn't it? Right. We we want to. Um, it's be better to you know, take a step back, take a deep breath, and take a look at the life we're living, and consider: Is this the life I want? Is is it my objective to get to my 85th birthday? And think, wow, look how productive I was. I don't think most people would be proud of that. They would be happy with their accomplishments. But I think there's a lot more to life than just working as much as you can. And I think the beauty of being alive uh, comes from making the most of the time we have. And making the most of that time requires taking the time to decompress, recharge your batteries, and get back to your best.
0: I'll take issue with a little of that, just because, we've talked about this before, there are some people who derive a great deal of joy and rejuvenation from their work, and to tell them they need to go be idle and do something else I think is wrong, because that's where they get their boost, that's where they get their energy, they love what they do, and they're happy to do it.
2: I had this come up a couple of years ago. I was doing a talk on this topic for a group of lawyers, and uh, one of the lawyers put his hand up and said the same thing. So, you know, I really love what I do. Uh, I get energy from it. Isn't it better for me to work all weekend and not do what you're telling me, which is you know, find, you know, intentionally find some, some leisure time? Uh, isn't it better for me to just keep working? And I said, this won't surprise you, no. Now, here's where research becomes valuable, because instead of just having a, you know, a, a contest of wills or just a, a debate of ideas, we can look at what the, what the evidence suggests. And there's two studies, actually. So for the first is one study looked at people who were high and low in terms of how engaged they were at work. And what they found was that the people who were more engaged actually ended up benefiting more from you know, transforming their downtime into uptime. So they benefited even more from making sure that they used their leisure time effectively than the people who weren't engaged. So because when you're engaged and you love what you do, you are using so many, so much more resources. Right? That's exactly what engagement is. Right? You're bringing your full self to your role. You're fully engaged by it. All of your neurons are firing. You're focused, you're energetic, and you're going to get tired. And so it's those people in particular who benefit even more from finding some leisure time than people who are less engaged. Now, this does not mean that you have to restrict yourself. You know, from Friday evening to Monday morning, you cannot do anything if you enjoy your work, you know, if, if this is what's going to make you happy, I would say find a little bit of time to do a little bit of it. But if you want to be good at what you do, again, the research is very clear on this, that if you take some time to replenish yourself, you're going to come back to your obligations more effective. So if you love what you do and you want to be good, you want to take some time. The other study uh, on this topic looked at workaholics, and the same pattern was found. The people who were higher in workaholism benefited even more from enjoying high-quality leisure time than people who are not workaholics. Again, because those resources get depleted by the workaholism and you need to replenish it.
0: You said a few minutes ago that, you know, ask yourself, is this the life you really want? And I think some people would say, well, may, maybe not, but this is the life I have. And right. so I've got to do what I've got to do. And And when talking about that thing that you know has to be done and you're not doing it and you feel guilty, well, Maybe you should just go do it.
2: Right. Yes. The challenge, I think, is that that becomes a habit. They find themselves in a life that they don't particularly like. They feel drained and depleted. They don't feel happy and fulfilled. And they just say to themselves, well, this is it. This is my life. There's nothing I can do. That mindset makes me sad because there's usually something you can do. Not always. Sometimes you're stuck. But I think most of the, usually when I speak with people about this sort of thing, and they say there's nothing they can do, or often, more frequently, what happens is people say to me, well, I just don't have any leisure time. And I, I say to them, no, that's not true. You do. I know you feel proud to say that you don't have any, because it makes you feel very productive. And in the world we live in, that's sort of a sign of pride to say you have none. But it's not true. You do have some. You're just not using it. And you don't like to admit that you have it. And it's the same thing with the life. Yes. Sometimes you just have to get stuff done. Absolutely. I mean, there are times I'll go through periods where I'll work, you know, 80 hours a week for months on end, but I really look forward to when that's over. And it's because it's when it's over and I can go back to having a slightly more balanced life that I feel better. You know, you know the old saying, you know, if, whether, whoever has the most toys at the end of their life wins. Or You, you can't take those toys to heaven. You know, it's not just about work.
0: But because our worldview and our mindset is so set, where do you even begin to do what you're talking about? Because if you tell someone who you're talking about, you know, take a week off or don't work Saturday or Sunday, or, you know, they, they, they look at you like deer in the headlights.
2: I guess the first place I begin is I say, what kind of life do you want? So let's take a hypothetical person. Work with me on this. So let's take a hypothetical person. What kind of, what kind of life do you want? What, what, give me an answer. What, what might they say to me? I want a life that is what?
0: Well, I don't know. Um, well, see, that, I think that's part of the problem, too, is I don't know that they know what they want. They, maybe they don't want this, but that doesn't mean they do know what they want.
2: Uh, but there, So that's an issue. I mean, who was it who said, the, I think it was Plato or Aristotle, the unexamined life is not worth living. You know, if you consider the fact, you know, if you're lucky, you get 80, 90, 100 years here. And as far as we know, we never come back. So we've got this opportunity to make the most of our time here we want to, if someone says, this is my life, this is what I do, I I would say to them, okay, take a minute, take a minute or take a day or take a week or take whatever time you need. Now think to yourself, what do I want in the time that I have remaining? What do I want to make of this time? And is there a way that you can start to make that happen?
0: Yeah, but but I think a lot of people would say, but I don't know what that means. What do I do? Okay, so if I'm going to do what you're saying uh, starting this Saturday... Instead of getting up and going to work like I normally do, what am I going to do? I, I, don't have, I don't play sports. I don't. I, what do I do?
2: Okay. The so first thing I would say is think back over your life to those moments where you felt most fulfilled. The moments where you felt full of joy. Let's start there. Just to start to get a baseline of the sorts of activities that fulfill you. So start with that. Start with thinking about activities you've done that really made you feel fantastic. And now start looking for themes. What sort of of activities were those? What was the the emotion? What was the, maybe you felt very accomplished. Maybe you felt really overjoyed. Maybe you felt like you were giving back. And I think when you look back over your life and your experiences and you begin to to think about what are the activities, uh, the experiences that, make me feel like my time here is worthwhile, whatever that means to you, I think that's a place to begin. So if people don't know what to do, they can look backward. The other thing they could do is look into the future. So think, okay, how much time do I have left? So I'm, I'm 50. So how much time do I have? Let's say I have, I don't know, let's say another 30 years. In the time remaining, if I'm starting from scratch, what do I want to do by the time I'm no longer here? And so instead of looking backwards now, I'm looking forwards. And again, I just sort of brainstorm creatively. Um, and I would say shoot for the moon. Like, don't restrict yourself to the life you're currently living. Just blue sky it. You can think whatever you want. If you could do whatever you wanted at all, you've got 30 years left. What do you want to accomplish? What do you want to do in that time? And that could mean sitting on the beach and collecting seashells. Or it could mean I want to give a speech at the United Nations. Or I want to make as much money as I can in the time remaining. Who am I to say what goal is better or worse? But as, as a psychologist who thinks a lot about the quality of life, I would say that I think it behooves everyone to take a minute to consider what it is they want out of this gift of being alive before it's over
0: yeah but then what do you do i mean then how do you, how do you know if you're doing this right? how do you wh- where's the where's the test? what's the line that oh now, oh, now I get it
2: The only thing you can do is experiment. It's like when you're young and you're trying to figure out what job is the best job for you. you can't know no matter how many vocational tests you take, you can't know what job is going to suit you best what's going to float your boat until you do it and so you go out and you experiment and you try everything on for size and you see what you like and you see what you don't like and you see which ones you better, see which ones you're good at, and it's the only option there is, is you just experiment with alternatives, and eventually the answer comes to you. That's the beauty of it. It, You know, the world has a way of of meeting you halfway. If you make the effort to try to figure out how to live your life to the fullest, the world has a way of helping you, and and the answer comes to you.
0: As self-evident as this may seem particularly to you, What's the payoff? What's the, what, what do you get for doing this?
2: You get to take full advantage of your life. Every one of us has some, some genius, some brilliance that is exclusive to us, some combination of brilliances. And if we, um, if we, if we realize those manifest brilliances, we feel great. We make a difference in the world. We actualize our potential, which is you know, what a lot, of, you know, a lot of humanistic psychologists would say, that that's our, that's our purpose here, is to um, achieve self-actualization, to, to uh, do in this world what is our unique purpose, to walk our unique path. Every one of us has a unique objective um, to achieve, and so many of us never achieve it, and so many of us have no idea what it is, so many of us don't even ever try because we don't know that it's possible because we get so stuck in a rut. We get stuck in the rut of go to school, graduate, get a job, pay your mortgage, have kids, get old and die. And we don't take advantage of the fact that there's, there's more than that.
0: Right. And that's the important thing to keep in mind and keep on the radar because it's so easy for that to fall off the radar. Jamie Grumman has been my guest. He is a professor of organizational behavior and a senior research fellow at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. And he's author of the book, Boost, The Science of Recharging Yourself in an Age of Unrelenting Demands. There's a link to his book in the show notes. I appreciate you being here. Thanks, Jamie.
2: Thanks very much, Mike. This has been a real pleasure.
0: So think for a moment. Are there people in your life that you would consider irritating? Well, if so, you might want to limit your exposure to them. Researchers at the University of Southern California say annoying people could be messing up your brain. Whether we realize it or not, we tend to mirror the people we're interacting with, and if the person you're interacting with is a jerk, it throws our brain a curveball. When we're around people we don't like or who are different than us, our brains actually slow down in a mental act of protest. The good news is the brain damage is temporary. Not only will you get back to normal when the jerk leaves your life, your brain activity can actually speed up and improve by interacting with someone you really like. And that is something you should know. Please subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Subscribing is free and the episodes are delivered right to your phone or other device so you never miss one.